Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern Adventurer podcast. Um, I now know, because when I got back to the UK, I was in hospital with it, they brought in a sports psychologist and she explained that that was my, I was so, I told my brain that they, we were going to the South Pole. So my mind was just making stuff up. So my mind to me, that is scabbing and it's getting better. And that's absolute nonsense. Like if you look at the picture, it's clearly not that. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have gone on incredible adventures in recent years. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends, leave a review and connect with me at John Horsfall on social media. I am building a community of adventurous people, so it would be great if you signed up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com, where I show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways, and offering you opportunities to come on our adventures with me and get out into the wild. Now, on with the show. My next guest is a British ultra-endurance athlete and lawyer. She recently skied 700 miles solo and unsupported from the coastline of Antarctica to the South Pole. On this week's podcast, we talk about that expedition and how her first failure in the pole spurred her on with such determination to complete the expedition even with polar thigh, a severe injury that ravaged her leg. I am delighted to introduce Jenny Wordsworth to the show. I suppose the best place to start is sort of about you and for anyone listening is tell us who you are and how you sort of got into this. Yeah, um, so my name is Jenny. Um, background, I guess what I call my proper job is I'm a lawyer that uh, pays the bills. <laughs> um, I'm also part of the North Face Explorer team, um, so do a lot with them all over the world. And my background really is in ultra running. Um, that's kind of what I was known for, if you like, um, and did professionally for two years. I took two years out of being um, a lawyer and did that full time out in the States. Um, really into mountaineering as well and how I got into all of this. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think I've been this way since I was a kid. I was always, always going to do stuff like this. I just love being outside and um, grew up in lots of countries abroad. Um, but I think really what got me off the path of sort of being this kind of lawyer, you know, in the city in London, you know, very much on a path to partnership, this whole kind of big plan um, and putting the other things to one side, the mountaineering, the running, kind of doing them in my spare time. The shift kind of happened when um, they discovered uh, what was then later found out to be benign tumour in my stomach. Um, I had to have a lot of treatment. It was pretty nasty. And then a big operation at the end. And that was my kind of moment of like, wait a minute, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with <laughs> working very long hours in a, in a law firm. Um, I did enjoy it, um, but you know, I enjoyed the kind of time outdoors even more. Um, and it came to a head when um, there was one weekend, particularly we were always expected to work weekends, especially when a big deal was on. And an email came around on Friday saying, who's free to work this weekend? Everyone jumps up and down and says, yes, me, I'm free, I'm free. And I had that moment of like, no, I'm not free. I've got a triathlon this weekend, I'm not cancelling it. Um, and I sort of got a little bit in trouble over that. <laughs> and it was a case of, you know, Jen, you keep doing this outdoor stuff. And we're very aware that you do that. It's great. We celebrate it. But also you're on the fast track internally. Like, what, what do you want to do? 
And as soon as I had that little meeting, I left and was like, I'm out of here. That was like the beginning of the end for me. Um, I did stay a lawyer, but I moved um, in-house. So that means you're the lawyer in a, in a private company and it's far more kind of nine to five. You're a normal employee like everyone else, not kind of in the office till 2, 3, 4 a.m. Um, so, yeah, uh, these days I'm still a lawyer um, and I tend to do more expeditions in the cold now, which was a shock to everyone, including myself. <laughs> uh, all the kind of ultra running I did was across uh, very hot deserts. That was my That was my bag. Um, so a real shock to me to kind of moving to things that were in the cold. So what do you feel drove your first South Pole expedition? Was it an idea that came to you or? Yeah, so initially the plan was to go to Antarctica. Always wanted to go. Um, always felt that I would go, but I just didn't know when. It was very expensive to go there. Uh, but I was going to go to climb some mountains. That was my first plan. And uh, it's one of those moments where you just look at a map and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go here and then I'm going to ski over to there. And like no idea actually to how that could happen um, or the dangers involved from getting from that A to B. So I wanted to climb Mount Vincent. And then my big, big plan was to ski from from there or somewhere near there um, to the South Pole, which is a new route no one had ever done. And I was told that um, NASA would need to just move their satellite a little bit onto that area so I could get data as to where the major crevasse fields were and then navigate around them. The bill came in, uh, it wasn't a bill, sorry, it was a quote, uh, for like over half a million pounds. And suddenly I was like, right, okay, that that's not happening anymore. <laughs> we'll do something else. Um, and I think the research I'd been doing for that, all of that, Antarctica, everything, got out all my old books since I was a kid about Antarctica. And I'm, the next morning over breakfast, I just said to my now husband, Matt, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to ski solo to the pole. Um, and that was it. Um, I think I, I think I decided that a week before Christmas. I don't know what year. and just told my family on Boxing Day and like no one, no one, it was like, that's nice. <laughs> Carry on. There's, there's no shock, surprise uh, or anything really. That was like, yeah, okay, Jam. Um, and that was it. Um, it it wasn't my first thing in the cold, so I'd done a big race in the Arctic, and um, very northern Sweden. I, I don't know why I signed up to that race, because I really hated the cold. I still don't totally love it, um, but I did that race. I used to have really bad rain nodes in my hands, which is horrible in the cold. I did that race um, and thought, actually, the cold was fine. I just needed to know what I was doing roughly, which is like layering correctly, controlling body temperature, not sweating. Um, so yeah, I thought I'll be okay in the cold. And um, once the decisions made to do that expedition, the amount of planning involved is huge. Um, and fitting that in around work was was quite something. And then finding the funding for it is like a full-time job in itself. Um, but yeah, it all came together. And so in terms of sponsorship and sort of preparation for that how long from that bo christmas day boxing day to actually going out and doing it how long did that take it was, it was two years two years for planning yeah and i, I i'm really um i'm not very patient <laughs> i would have done it in a year um which is wrong i wouldn't have been ready but i, I didn't have the funds together um, it can take so long. And my kind of approach every day, I had this rule where I would pitch to five different companies. And it was just like getting those emails out. And it's it's nearly always the case with these things of just the right person reading that email. 
getting the story, loving it. Um, or sometimes it's just, oh my God, if you'd emailed a month earlier, we just closed our marketing budget for the year. So it's it's just, it's honestly potluck and it's a case of just never, ever giving up. Um, it definitely helped. I had a background in running. So I had a lot of running sponsors, um, but I'm not running to South Pole. So <laughs> it, was, it wasn't as straightforward as being like, oh, it's asking my running sponsors to get involved with this. Um, for the training side they could but not for the actual attempt itself so it, it was kind of finding sponsors from scratch um, you know and kind of saying here I am here is what I do in running but I'm, I'm moving into long distance skiing <laughs> and for training for that were you you know attaching a tire to your backpack and running up Hampstead Heath or yeah. <laughs> commuting to work with a tire on the back <laughs> I think going to work with a tire that would have infuriated Londoners um i i actually find training with the tire is a little bit too straightforward sometimes it's good for a kind of hours on your feet um being outdoors with some weight behind you for a very long time um i spend a lot of time on the south downs way just like nine ten hours on a saturday same again on a sunday i did a lot of time on the heath uh, but i got asked so many questions <laughs> that i had to come up with a rule that if any adults stopped me to ask what on earth i was doing I'd be like, oh, this is just how I go walking or, oh, this is just how I exercise. They'd give you some strange – if it was kids, then I'd always stop and tell them what I was doing and why because that's you know, interesting for them. But I was finding that I was adding on like an hour to training because I was answering all these questions. And people were always like, that's amazing. Tell me more. And you don't – as lovely as that is, you just – don't have, time management is everything. Um, I don't have the time to, to tell everyone the story. But, yeah, I actually moved it um, more into training on a treadmill um yeah. with um a belt around me and behind that um on the floor was about 80 90 kilos of kettlebells and a bungee um maximum incline and no external stimulus at all so just staring if it was a mirror in the gym that was quite annoying so just looking at yourself but <laughs> a white wall would be would be the optimum um, the whole point of that is just to mimic the conditions um because sometimes there isn't very much to look at out in antarctica especially in a storm um, but yeah, I definitely preferred being outdoors, but that was kind of the easier option versus, yeah, hardship on a on a treadmill. And so in terms of the first attempt in 2018, because as, as I was saying earlier, what I love about your story was the sort of the first attempt of the South Pole didn't go well um can you tell the sort of viewers a bit more about what happened on that first attempt sure um so um on about day 21 22 maybe um i got really bad abdominal pains and i can run through pain i've done events with broken feet and arms before you know it's fine until afterwards uh, but this felt like something different i was getting a little bit feverish and i just wasn't quite sure what was wrong with my stomach um but if you put that much time and effort into preparing for something there's no way you're just going to say oh I think I'm a bit sick you know come and come and medivac me and a medivac in Antarctica is a major operation um, logistically for them to pull off and I also I didn't want to be medivac I didn't want to stop and so I had about three three days of very polite British arguments with a doctor on a satellite phone <laughs> where um and I should also say, like, I've got my my husband's a doctor, so I was speaking to him, you know, I'm not that sick, I think I'm okay, did I? you're obviously trying to downplay it. And I think the great thing about the medical team that work in Antarctica 
Um, and they're not really there for people like me. They're there for like tourists that go there or the scientists that work there, um, but also for people like me. And I've paid to kind of be looked after by them, if you like. So I am entitled to a medivac. <laughs> um, but they are very much trained in dealing with individuals like myself who, first of all, you've got a little bit of cabin fever. You've been in a tent for a long time. Um, but they also know what went into you getting even to the start line. So they know you're not willing to give up and they probably know you're not entirely being truthful with them when you kind of downplay the serious new injury. Um, but yeah, we uh, <laughs> they recorded those conversations. Apparently they're very, very funny. Um, I refused to be medivaced uh, for three days. And then I, I just knew that I was really unwell. I didn't move for a day, and that's a really bad sign. Um, even before that, though, the weather had been horrific. It was something like the worst weather on record in 50 years. Um, I had nothing to compare it to. Um, I obviously knew what the weather should be like in Antarctica at that time of year. I also knew that it's not it's not deep snow you're traveling in. It's more like it's more similar to being on a glacier with a little bit of snow on top. And so none of your equipment, um, your equipment just needs to glide. You don't really have to worry about it kind of sinking into deep snow. And everything was just sinking into deep snow. Um, the snow in some parts was thigh, thigh height, which is unheard of. Uh, so I was like, this is really hard. <laughs> Uh, this is not I mean I knew it was gonna be hard but this is really hard and I wasn't making the progress I wanted so even if I hadn't become unwell um I think I would have made the poll but I, I definitely wouldn't have got the speed record which is what I was aiming for that was very much the primary goal the first attempt I was like if I don't get the speed record I will not be happy it wouldn't have been enough for me to just to make the poll is the truth um, I didn't really say that publicly because I, I don't think people like hearing that it sounds a bit too competitive um, but I'm only competitive with myself, but that was truly my goal. Um, so, yeah, I was medivaced. Uh, it was all very dramatic. The plane landed beside me and um, took me back to the main base camp uh, where I was I was stable for about two hours. And the main base camp in Antarctica, I guess, is where they have most of the logistical operations, tiny little medical tent. And I was in there on a couple of IV, IVs, antibiotics, Um and I thought, gosh, I think I feel a bit better, which made me feel worse because I was like, well, can I go back now? <laughs> Stupid. And then I suddenly um, took a really bad turn. Um, and at that time, they thought I might have appendicitis. That was a kind of working theory. Uh, they called forward the Aleutian jet, which is a huge jet plane. It's the only plane in the world that can land on a blue ice runaway. And um, it wasn't due till the next day. They brought that forward. And that got me back to Chile within, I don't know, six hours or something. And I was hospitalized there for three, four nights. Um, and I had peritonitis, which is a quite a serious bowel infection. And if you leave that, you become septic. And then it's really dangerous. And two years before me, there'd been a gentleman in Antarctica, Henry Worsley, who um, he had that and he passed away. And that actually was really, I mean, I obviously knew about that story. It was horrible when it happened. But once I got my diagnosis, it was really sobering. And I felt really bad for ever putting up a fight with a, a very British polite fight. It wasn't rude. But, <laughs> um, but the doctors, I'm so glad they did what they did. Um, and then from there, I was medivaced back to London. Um, and I was in hospital for about another week here. And then after that, I was completely fine. Um, and that's all down to the actions of the doctors in Antarctica because they started antibiotic treatment so quickly. It really wasn't that big a deal. Um, but I did not enjoy coming home to London. Um, and feeling like a complete failure and in some ways it helped if you like that it's because I was sick that I had to pull out but I knew deep down that forget about the illness I wouldn't have got the speed record anyway I don't believe at all 
I mean, the weather was awful. It was snowy. Like, it never snows in Antarctica. So I would have gone back anyway, is the truth. Um, and as you know, I did go back. <laughs> so I got back, um, I think, that January. And the season in Antarctica to go and do things like this is in their summer, which runs from November to January. And um, so the earliest I could go back was that November. <clears throat> and that's what I did. Yeah. Oh, wow. God. And so in terms of, I mean, God, I've got a million questions. But in terms of that particular illness, is that a common thing? No, I mean, I, I really hope not. I think that was just two um, really unfortunate occasions. Um, the, the gastroenterologist that treated me, there's obviously no research on this, but his working theory at the time was <clears throat> when you're doing something like a long skiing expedition in Antarctica and you're pushing really hard to break a speed record, um, your body is doing everything to keep you moving and it maybe doesn't focus on other jobs within the body that it should be um, as much. And so your, your immune system is a little bit down, you're more prone to infections and it's, um, it's, it's basically your, your gut kind of leaking and that translocation of the microbes causes an infection. Um, but I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say it was common, no. no. I hope it isn't anyway. <laughs> You, you had had your first ex expedition to the South Pole, um, which hadn't gone to plan. You'd got back and your determination to go out for the second attempt was, what, nine months, eight months? Yeah, eight months away. Um, I, I knew on the plane home that I was going back. Um, yeah. I wanted to wait a couple of months before making the decision because I was worried it was just tied up in feeling like such a failure. Like I remember even in hospital, my phone was on airplane mode in London. I didn't want to deal with anyone. I wasn't ready to you know, speak to anyone just yet. I thought, oh, I'll be safe reading the Metro paper. And I opened the Metro paper and there's a like, second page is a picture of me and it says, um, London lawyer in the South Pole failure. <laughs> I God. And I was like, oh, <laughs> get rid of that. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to make sure my, my, my wife going back was, you know, the same as it had been the first time or maybe even better. Um, and then also it's quite a big decision to go back. you get all that money together again. Um, and I also think for me it was a joint decision with Matt and I um, because it could be quite a selfish undertaking doing expeditions like this like your whole life for the next nine months again would be about me and Antarctica there's interviews to do there's press stuff to do there's filming for a documentary to do and um, every free time we all the free time we have together is 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 focused on me and my training so the weekends are you know where are we going in the lakes this weekend so that I can train um and he's never once why he's fully supportive of a lot of similar things himself but still it's not something to be taken advantage of i don't think i i thought it was a lot to ask um and matt was like yeah sure so, so <laughs> it wasn't that big a deal after all um and then the other the other factor to take into account was um i promised work i promised the board of the company that i where i worked that i would um that my first trip to antarctica was the last major expedition i'd be doing a major in terms of the amount of time I needed off work, which was about eight eight weeks. And um, I said after that, you know, I'll um, I'll, everything I do will be a normal annual leave. There'll be nothing mental. Don't worry. That was my like verbal promise. And so, uh, yeah, asking for that time off again was a bit awkward. So I was just keeping it under wraps for a little while until I knew it was definitely happening. Um, I had to have my thyroid removed. 
um, in February before I could do any training, I had a very, um, very overactive thyroid. Uh, it took a while to be diagnosed and figure that out. So that had to be taken out. And as soon as that was done, I got back into to training. Um, got a new coaching team together, an amazing coach in the US, uh, Mike McCastle, and then one here in London, Joel Proskowitz. And um, oh, they're such incredible coaches. They're never, ever going to get rid of me now. And uh, yeah, the training was a dream. It was just such a great time. Um, I've never felt as strong as I did. Um, and it was a really great lead up to, to leaving again. Um, for the aim was another world record attempt, but I think what I liked that changed for me between the first attempt and the second attempt was the first one, I think I said I was hell bent on the world record. Nothing else would even interest me. And I remember Matt and family saying to me before I went, you should maybe have that as a secondary goal. <laughs> like, you know, so many, so many things have to go right for you to get a record. And I know that it doesn't matter. My, you know, super optimistic this is gonna happen let's go let's go let's go um and that year I actually spent a lot of time reframing and the, the primary goal was just to make the south pole and the secondary goal would be to get get the record and um for me to say that and actually mean it was a huge um win for me and I think um I think it's made me a better person actually I'm still very very competitive um but it was nice to actually feel that if I just made the poll, I'd be genuinely happy with that and not get home in a month later and be like, well, I was kind of lame. I think I could have done better. And like really, you know, beat yourself up. Um, and so, yeah, it was about just just getting there. Um, but I, I trained so hard. I can't tell you the amount of hours I put into training. Training to me is everything because it's a way of sort of controlling the controllables. There's so many things, especially if you choose to do expeditions in these environments that you have no control over. The way I kind of deal with that, if you like, is you control what you can and then the rest, it's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> what will be, what will be. So training, I never miss a session, it's everything. Um, and yeah, left in, I think it was about, someone told me, a friend messaged a couple of days ago to say, oh, this is the, this is when you left to start um, the second attempt. And I wouldn't have known that. So yeah, it's like a year ago this week. God. And so sort of, because, yeah, you had eight months to do it. You landed in Antarctica. And then what was the sort of mindset you had for that trip? Because I imagine it was very different to the first attempt. Yeah, the difference is just what I, it was that I was going to get there. And that would be enough. And if I got the world record, amazing. And that was so different from the first year where I was just like, no, if I don't get the record, then that's rubbish. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, it was... It was very strange going to do the same thing again uh, because um, there were so many other things I had planned for that this year, that year. <laughs> so in some ways, like 10% of me was a little bit annoyed that I was going to do this again. Um, and also I thought Antarctica, I'll be going there once in my lifetime and that'll be it. It's such an incredible place, but so expensive to get to. I never thought in this lifetime I'd be there twice. So I had a little bit of guilt over that. And I think I had guilt as well because I know how many people want to do th things like this. I might laugh, it's not a huge amount of people, but people want to do this. And it's so hard to get the money together. It's what the all expeditions come undone because of it. And um, for me, getting the funding for the second time was really straightforward. I called my sponsors and it was a case of we thought you'd never ask. Like, we're so happy you're going back. So it was really easy and it felt a bit, a bit handed. You know what I mean? Like, I quite... You quite, I think you get a lot from fighting for it 
and having those failures like oh that person's not going to sponsor me after all that company isn't and oh this isn't working like all those things and this time it was like yeah here you go and that was really odd there was no fight um and I was a bit worried is that going to take away from my performance I mean nonsense it didn't um but yeah it was a bit of a different mindset it was a more grown-up mindset I think actually um it was probably a bit ridiculous to you know have your your primary goal was being the world record but that's the way I was um yeah so started uh it was amazing the weather was normal <laughs> I was like this is normal Antarctic weather and uh, there's a couple of big storms but I was like these are fine I'm, I'm skiing through them and I was ahead of the world record pace by nearly two days um all the way until things started going wrong <laughs> as they inevitably do yeah exactly <laughs> a couple of things went wrong but really the main you know the, what led to everything going wrong was there was the leg um so I had a um a condition called polar thigh um mostly on my left inner thigh and that is it's fairly common amongst um more women than men actually doing really long polar expeditions and um there's a lot of or there was rather doctors kind of a bit unsure about what causes it and why and um, but really the best explanation we have for now is it's kind of like a severe chillblain and obviously staying in the cold makes it progressively worse um, and as the skin is trying to heal and uh, so basically i jumped a step um miss a blah, step what happens is you have these ulcers on your leg they're very small to begin with and then they basically start to grow so you're like, oh, that doesn't look that great. I'll just cover that up. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason they kind of keep growing, if you like, is they have uh, what doctors call a reperfusion element. And so as the blood flow is going back to the air to try and heal, it actually causes more inflammation, more area gets damaged, and it keeps growing. Um, so there's pictures of my injury um, on the on my Instagram account. And they're, they're pretty horrible. <laughs> and you can kind of see how. So they started off being really small. And I only had one little sheet of granny flex, which is a kind of dressing we use on big expeditions where you can just quite thick, it's like a slab of dressing. Uh, you peel it off, whack it on, and that's not going to go anywhere until you kind of finish, get home, and you've had a long shower. Um, and I was running out of that. I was like, <laughs> so my leg looks a bit like a patchwork quilt near the end. Um, but everything came undone. I had a really, really benign fall in a whiteout, um, fell over nothing. And as I landed, I heard and felt all the ulcers crack open, basically split open into one big leg wound. And it was it was absolutely horrific. Um, I've never heard a noise like it. And I lay there, you know, just looking up at nothing. It was a whiteout and just crying. I mean, it was the most amount of physical pain I've ever been in. And then at that point, I think I had about 100, 150 miles to go, something like that. And it was like, wow. I, I, I'm still going and at that point I went from skiing really well God, I mean everything was going so well like I said I was ahead of the world pace the world record pace um, and suddenly I'm skiing and dragging a leg behind me um, sorry I don't think I explained at the beginning I've got a huge sled behind me with my tent all my food supply absolutely everything I could need so that's not light and um, suddenly dragging this leg and it, it it just became so so difficult even things like putting the tent up and down, which in high winds is a fast, speedy job. You've got to be on it. And um, there's lots of kind of, you're up, you're down, you're putting snow here and building snow walls there. And trying to do that with my leg open like that was 
awful. Um, but yeah, <laughs> there was I was never ever stopping. That never ever entered my mind. Um, I moaned a lot to, to my dad as the expedition manager, and so I could. There's a way of sending sort of text messages from Antarctica using the Garmin InReach. And I'm very, I don't, I'm not on comms with a lot of people because it takes too much time. So it's just Matt and my dad. And I swear every message was just my leg. I'm in so much pain. You don't understand. And then I'd apologize for moaning so much. Um, I, I still don't know how I did it. I don't. Um, I had a very few uh, painkillers left. And these were painkillers that were uh, in my emergency bag. And they were in case I fell down a crevasse, broke a shoulder and I'd be medivaced and they were to pop and take while I was waiting for the helicopter or whatever they were not meant to ski with just to help your leg get to the south pole and um, so I couldn't take them during the day because on a solo expedition it's just you and you need to have your wits about you for navigation for you can't be completely out of it and um, so I would take them at night um until I ran out and then I remember actually because uh, you decant everything into really lightweight bags so my painkillers were on a little labeled um uh like food bag snack bag and I remember sitting there licking the inside of the bag <laughs> to get the very last remnants of painkiller. And, um, yeah, it was horrific. I arrived at the pole. Um, the day that I saw the pole, when it came into sight, I knew that it was still very, very far away. Um, and I probably should have stopped and camped between between the two places. And I didn't. I skied for 19 hours straight. Um, for the last four or five hours, I didn't stop for, for a drink or food. I was just like, I'm getting there. This is this is it. Got there at about two in the morning at the South Pole, met by the South Pole um, guide, uh, camp manager rather, Dev. And he handed me a beer. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it was it was very, very strange. For For people listening, what is it like at the South Pole? Um, it feels mostly like a scientific base and you feel like you're intruding. I wouldn't say, um, so if you imagine there's, it's the American, um, scientific bases there, which is huge. And also I think very messy. I do remember thinking, God, you guys are untidy. There's all sorts of equipment just like littered, um, in their back garden, if you like. And I was really surprised they went more tidy. But anyway, um, and a little, then there's a South Pole right outside their, their base. Um, the kind of barber pole that we all know and love and then maybe half a mile away from there is the I guess what you'd call the tourist camp which is tiny I think there's about eight tents maybe and then a slightly bigger tent where like a mess tent you can come in and eat and play cards or whatever and that's where I'm allowed to be but there's very specific rules about where you're allowed to go around the scientific kind of base camp Um, I wouldn't say it's the most welcoming place actually (laughs) Um, it was very, very cold. The sky looks very odd. Um, and sometimes I was convinced I could see curvature, which I obviously couldn't, but it was, it was just a very strange place to be. And I couldn't believe after all this time, I'm finally here. Um, but there was a doctor there. There isn't normally a doctor at the South Pole camp. Um, but I should explain, sorry, with my leg every night, um, when I was skiing with that injury, I would have to make a satellite phone call to the main base camp and speak to the doctors. Um, That was compulsory. Um, And every day they say, we need to medivac you, we need to medivac you. And as you know, I'm well-versed in medivacs in Antarctica at this point. And there's no way I was being medivaced. And the reason being is I was not unwell. I had no fever. 
there was no signs of infection in my leg. Like it's a very clean, sterile environment, Antarctica. And so I, I could not see the merit in being medivaced other than you, this is just going to get worse until you get out of the cold. And I decided I didn't, I didn't care about that. Um, and I also thought my leg was getting better. So it kind of makes more sense if you can see the first photo of my leg um, with what I call the patchwork quilt. It's got all the little um, patches of granuflex dressing. And in between that, you can kind of see uh, it's dried blood. But I, hand on heart, was absolutely convinced that that was scabbing, healthy scabbing. So it's getting better underneath this dressing. That's my mindset. Um, I now know, because when I got back to the UK, I was in hospital with it. They brought in a sports psychologist and she explained that that was my, I was so, I told my brain that we were going to the South Pole. So my mind was just making stuff up. So my mind to me, that is scabbing and it's getting better. And that's absolute nonsense. Like if you look at the picture, it's clearly not that. Um, and I, I, was, I was just getting there no matter what. Um, and yeah, so there was a doctor waiting there at the South Pole because I repeatedly refused to be medevaced and they needed to take a look. Um, it was kind of luck that he was there though, to be honest. And um, he took a look at the leg the next day and him and Dev, who was helping bandage my leg, they couldn't remove any of the granuflex. You need a hot shower to do that. There's no showers at the South Pole. So they just covered it in big, comfortable bandaging just to keep me cosy. And I was put on a diet of morphine and beer until we could fly out of the South Pole. And you can't just leave the South Pole. It used to be a clear weather window at the South Pole and the main base camp. And it's like a, I think it's a four-hour flight in between. It's a long way. I mean, Antarctica's huge. So we were there three or four days and I was high the entire time. Um, I don't remember much of it. I do remember getting fed up with being high, <laughs> but they were just trying to keep me comfortable and also doing anything to avoid infection. I'm now around other people. I can't get leg infected. Um, but what I do know is that um, when they first looked at my leg, they both the doctor and Deb recoiled at the smell. So you can see this in the second picture. Um, there's a big area of black tissue. Um, once they remove the granuflex. So that is necrotic. It's completely dead tissue. Um, and apparently it stank something. Obviously it didn't smell nice. It's rotting tissue. I did not smell that once. And the sports psychologist again explained that is your mind saying this, there's no smell there. There's nothing wrong with this leg. We're going to the South Pole. And I think the power of the mind there, once it was explained to me that way, that's just, it just blew me away. Um, and no one could believe I couldn't smell it. And I would get my nose right into it and they'd be like, oh God, Jen, how can you not smell that? And I just couldn't. Um, so yeah, I had a great time at the pole. I drank beer, drank whiskey, kept taking so many painkillers. Eventually we flew back to the main base camp uh, where I was put in a shower. Uh, and that was a really traumatic experience for me. Um, peeling off that granny flex. And a lot of this doesn't make sense until you see the pictures, but peeling those bits off in the shower. And in the shower I had, instead of where the shower gel was, uh, they gave me a bottle of whiskey. And doctor's orders was just keep sipping that whiskey. This is not, this is going to be awful. Um, and he fed me um, <laughs> painkillers through the shower curtain. Uh, people said I sounded like a howling animal. And it was it was very, very difficult. I was in a lot of physical pain. And then, um, yeah, then we waited for the flight home. There was no urgency around at this time because I was fine other than my leg. I wasn't unwell. 
and again <laughs> they just kept me drunk and high <laughs> until I could go home um went straight home thanks to BA um to Heathrow husband meets me at the airport and um he's a plastic surgeon and so he would normally do this operation on my leg uh, but couldn't didn't fancy operating on his wife so his colleague did it but the weird thing in the airport when I saw him obviously I haven't seen him in a long time it's very exciting is he's like we're going to the hospital right now they're waiting for you and I was like what dude come on no like I and I knew I needed to go to a hospital but to me I'm just still in the mindset I'm explaining if I can't smell anything I think it's healing I thought um they needed to replace the bandaging since I was on the plane and I also believed um they just wanted to have a look it's very rare to see polythi it's not very common at all I did not realize that I needed surgery at all I thought I thought Matt was crazy um get to the hospital they have a meeting about my surgeries meanwhile I've eaten two packs of crisps and two chocolate bars <laughs> and they come out and say we're going to operate on you immediately and they couldn't because I just stuffed my face with all that food <laughs> um but yeah I'm rambling on now but um I had to have two operations and um, one to remove all that dead tissue all the black bits and the horrible bits second one was a big skin graft and um, which took I think 60 percent of it took uh, recovery was really long. I had to go back to hospital every one or two days to get the dressings changed. And I didn't look at my leg for maybe six weeks. Um, psychologist really encouraged me to. And I just couldn't. I thought, I know it looks horrific. I can tell from people's reactions. And I think I'd rather see it once it's slightly more healed. And then surely it's more palatable to me. Um, and the psychologist was amazing. I got really bad flashbacks to the shower in Antarctica. So getting to a shower at home was really scary um and I, I didn't like I felt quite powerless over that and I didn't enjoy it it wasn't a case of like Jen just woman up like you're fine it's just a shower it was it was a really big deal um not for long maybe about two weeks and I also kept having these recurrent dreams in the hospital and I was in hospital for a week and a half and at home where the entire ward would turn into a huge storm in Antarctica and I could see the pole. It was like a couple hundred yards in front of me. So I'd been on the road for, it took me 44 days in the end. So I'd been going for a long time. And Father Christmas just stepped out and was like, oh, you can't go to the pole. It's closed today. Sorry. <laughs> you need to go. You need to go home. Or a, a different iteration each time, but someone preventing me getting there. Um, and again, psychologists explain that's to your brain now catching up that you actually made it and you're home and it hasn't quite processed that yet and so you're still getting this like fear that you're still there and haven't made it yet um so in some ways all of that was quite a big deal in some days some ways it wasn't um I lost no function to my leg which was huge to me it's the first thing I asked um after both my operations when I woke up all groggy was like have I lost any function and if I lost function I don't know what state mentally I'd have been in I'd have been really really upset because I my injury didn't need to be this bad. This is purely me wanting to complete something. Uh, but there's no loss of function. There's just a very, very big scar. <laughs> it's an incredible story. And as a, you, you show incredible determination and drive to sort of push through the sort of pain barrier. And as you said, that sort of mentality. Have you always had this drive and this determination? From Were you always ultra competitive growing up? Not really growing up, but definitely, you know, those kind of lost teenage years where I was just, didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> just kind of figuring life out. It wasn't like that then. Um, I think once I started getting into ultra running, 
And first of all, it starts with a half marathon, then a marathon, then a longer marathon. You start to think, wait a minute, all these kind of limitations I'd placed and what I assumed I could do were absolute nonsense. And then suddenly you're doing like 400 mile races and that seems insane. And then someone's like, well, have you heard about this 500 mile race? And you're like, well, hold on. (laughs) Um, No, I haven't always been super competitive. Um, not in my younger years, but as an adult, definitely, but only ever with myself. I don't play the comparison game with anyone. Um, I care about what I'm doing, what I'm getting up to. Um, so no, I don't, but I've forgotten the question now. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Uh, Hold on. Um, I do remember what it was. Yeah. So the, the drive and determination aspect of it. Um, I've always known that is definitely in me. Like if I say I'm doing something, I mean it and it's going to happen. And I will organize my life, my lifestyle, everything to make it so. Um, But what spooked me about this expedition is I did not know that I had the mental strength. Is it strength? I don't know. To push through that level of pain. And some people think that's amazing. I think that's a bit scary. (laughs) Yeah, and something, yeah. something that needs to be kept in check a little bit because I, I think I said this earlier on, but I've, I've, I've done events where I'm a huge amount of physical pain, had a broken bone, but I run through it. I can, I can put the pain somewhere else in my mind and it, it must be adrenaline as well. You're doing a race and then when it ends, like you feel the injury tenfold and you deal with it then. Um, and when I was younger, especially, I would train through injuries, didn't care, just keep going, keep going. Um, now I'm older, I don't do stupid stuff like that, but I definitely used to, I didn't care if I was in pain. But being able to carry on skiing with that leg wound, that's crazy to me. <laughs> um, and so I knew I had that mental strength there, but I'm, I think it's something to, it's good that I'm aware of. Um, but, yeah, you definitely there's a balance. You've got to keep that in check a little bit because it might not end that way next time. Did you get into ultra running um, after your cancer diagnosis? Uh, yes, yeah, so it wasn't. It wasn't cancer. Um, they oh, they treated it very aggressively because it was so large they couldn't do any biopsy of it. And so um, I was given a, a strong form of treatment to shrink it in size, which made me really sick. And then they operated on it um, from the hospital uh, in London. Um, I signed up to my first ultra from there, and I'd never done anything like it. I signed up to the Marathon de Sab from bed, and uh, I don't remember doing it. Um, it was like the day after my surgery. And so obviously I, I was put on a waiting list. I didn't automatically get a spot. I think it was only like, it would have been just for Christmas and the races, I think in April or something. I can't remember. Um, and it was, a, yeah, I got home. And then at Christmas, I remember my, I got an email one day from someone called Sarah saying, congratulations, you've got a place on the Marathon de Sable. You're on the waiting list and the spots come up. And I was like, what the hell? And I was like, oh, my God, I do remember something about that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is a sign. I've got to do it. So I just you know, paid the deposit and that was it. Uh, but that was my first uh, foray into really long distance. I've done marathons before that, but nothing like big ultras. Do you think that um, diagnosis, though, was a sort of kick in terms of you to pursue these adventures? It definitely was. And it was it's come back to the job I was doing at the time, the hours I was working. And it was like, I mean, I never, ever believed um, that it was going to be a cancer diagnosis. Um, a lot of family and the doctors are very worried about me, but I just, I didn't feel unwell, I guess. Maybe you don't. Um, a lot of people say they don't, so, but I just didn't believe there was anything wrong with me. I just needed to get through this. 
but I still had mo- you still are faced with life could look very different or it could be shortened massively. And so what am I doing with my time? What matters to me? And it's certainly not earning a fortune as a lawyer. So. <laughs> wow. God. And so uh, there's a sort of part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. And the first is on your trip, let's say to the South Pole, what was the one bizarre thing that you craved or missed from home? Um, so I don't miss anything when I'm away. I really don't. I don't miss things. I don't miss food. Like I love dehydrated food, um, which most people do not, but I adore it. And if I'm being really lazy and there's no one around to cook, I make a dehydrated meal for dinner. <laughs> I really do. Um, the one thing I remember craving a couple of times on this last expedition was being able to crawl into my own bed. That's all I can. I just wanted to get into bed, like preferably with the dog, and just be like cozy. And I think it is is when my leg was really, really painful. I just wanted my own. I do remember daydreaming about, oh, my duvet is amazing. Oh, and there's my pillow. Oh, it's such a good pillow. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't crave anything um, at all. In fact, I love getting away from everything. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no cravings yeah we, we uh had geordie stewart on uh on episode four and he was saying he wrote his book about traveling the world and one of them was you don't quite appreciate it home until you come back to your own pillow yeah this your own pillow is everything yeah, yeah. That, that's the only thing i thought about was duvet and my pillow um yeah <laughs> <laughs> I imagine with the uh, temperatures in the South Pole, must have must have really emphasised it a bit. Just wanting to hide, and yeah, it's, it's actually quite <laughs> warm in your tent in places like that. Because um, you have to remember, there's 24 hours sunlight, and so your your tent becomes this kind of sun trap. Not always, um, but yeah, it's not too cold in the actual tent. <laughs> <laughs> did, um, did you have like a favourite adventure book growing up? Um, so I'm looking at my bookshelf behind me, like, hmm, which was my favourite. Um, I have. What sort of books inspired your adventures? Oh gosh, anything about the outdoors, like cycling around the world, mountaineering books, all the Ranulph Fine books. I mean, I've got all of them, and I've read them all many times. Um, oh, the Race to the Pole with James Cracknell and Ben Fogle. Um, that was a five-part TV series as well as a book. And uh, it's on YouTube still, and I've watched that so many times. I find it comforting just having it on in the background. Um, also, my husband's in it. But um, the my favourite book that I have read at least 10 times, and I read it both times before I went to Antarctica again, is um, by Felicity Aston, who is, I think, the world's leading female polar explorer. Um, and it's called Alone in Antarctica. Uh, she was the first woman to do a full crossing in Antarctica. She's amazing. Um, and it's so beautifully written. She's such a great writer. Um, so, yeah, that's my favourite, favourite book. And if you read it, if you, you haven't been to Antarctica, but you want to kind of understand what it's like, that book takes you there. Oh, like, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have an inspirational figure growing up? Um, I grew up in Borneo 
and um, there was a huge amount of poverty. And so I obviously knew that we weren't poor, we weren't on the poverty line. And um, I used to play with a lot of kids who lived in like the, I call them compounds, so kind of like the shanty towns next door to where we were. So we were there because parents worked for an oil and gas company, and so you're in a nice kind of estate, if you like. And then everyone else was next door, which I really struggled with as a kid. But they, it was the the children that I played with in the rainforest or out in those um, shanty towns because we were always in there as kids. We weren't supposed to be, <laughs> but it was more fun. <laughs> um, they had nothing, like really nothing. And I had all these toys and I was like, but they're just as happy as I am. Um, and they, like just growing up there, everything about that place had a lasting influence on me. Um, my mom has a, remembers a story where I had a big birthday party all these presents given to me and mum and dad popped out for like 10 minutes and they came back and I'd given away all my presents over the, the fence <laughs> they'd all gone um, I just really struggled with uh, having so much um, and I really really struggled settling back into the UK we moved back when I was 12 and um, I thought the UK was the craziest place ever <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't like it. Uh, I didn't understand why people cared about wearing branded clothing, um, why they had so much stuff. And I, I find it really, really hard. But in terms of who's always inspired, it's, it's people like that that I grew up with um, because they had nothing. Amazing. Um, do you have like a favorite quote or motivational quote? Yeah, I've got loads. <laughs> I actually write a lot of quotes on the inside of my tent, my expedition tent. Um, and one I've got in big. Um, so it's the first thing you see when you wake up on the roof of the tent in, inside um, is let routine take command of feeling. I can't actually remember who said it, which is really bad. It was someone in the polar community. I think it's Erling Kagi, actually. And um, it's basically no matter how you're feeling, you have a routine to follow. Because on polar expedition, any kind of expeditions, especially long ones the routine you have every day of i'm up at this time takes 20 minutes to boil the water and eat then i'm doing this i'm doing this i'm on the road by nine you have to stick to that routine especially when you're by yourself like if you and i went to do something together in antarctica if you were having a bad day i'd be like come on dude let's get going you'd be like okay yeah and you do the same for me the next day if i was low but when you're solo there's no one there um to do that for you so you really really are independent in the, in the true sense of the word so the routine becomes everything. It's almost like the rule book. Um, and so no matter how you're feeling, you don't want to get out of the tent, don't want to do this today. It's tough because there's a routine. So the routine is king. Um, and then also the number one thing was to never look outside the tent before you got up properly. Because if you saw that it was a whiteout, you'd just be miserable getting ready and <laughs> take like an extra 20 minutes. It's going to be a oh, rough day. So I would never look until I, until I got outside. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. How did you find your routine in lockdown? Um, fine. A lot of people assumed I would struggle in lockdown and go a bit crazy. But actually, I had I really liked it because I had no pressure to do to say yes to things or be anywhere. And no one could make me because you're not allowed. That's <laughs> against the law. Um, I definitely did have a routine, though. Um, I stuck to my training. Um yeah, I didn't miss any training in lockdown. It was just doing it in the living room or on the bike indoors. So, yeah, the, the routine was just as important in something like lockdown when every day kind of became Groundhog Day a little bit. Yeah. 
And I suppose people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend them to get started? I always tell people to find yourself a mentor, um, especially if it's something that you think is pretty big or is quite new to you, or is maybe an area that not many people have been to. Um, find someone who's maybe done it before, and nine times out of ten, they're more than willing to give you a hand um, and help you out. And I think, like I mentor a lot of people who want to do things in Antarctica, and it, you know, the first phone call, it's like well, I've just got this crazy dream. I don't really know if it's possible. And I think it just helps speak to someone. He's like, yeah, it's totally possible. You just need to speak to this person. You need to do this and da, 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 and just break it down. It's like, oh, that's totally achievable. And you're like, yeah, it's fine. But when it, when it's – because I had the same. I had a mentor um, when I first wanted to do something in Antarctica. And I think it's then your circle of friends or your family, what you're suggesting to them as your little idea is absolutely bananas. Yeah. And so you need to speak to someone who, no, that's, that's not crazy totally doable and then you're suddenly like oh you're standing up a bit taller you're like wait a minute I think I can do this um so I always say that yeah and um what are you doing now what are your sort of future plans with your adventures and how can people follow you so um 2020 was cancelled so <laughs> <laughs> everything from 2020 was moved to 2021 um, the what I was doing next um, was rowing the Pacific, the team of three other women. Um, that was going to be next June, um, but then something more exciting came along. So I'm currently pregnant, um, and so a lot of things for next year have been cancelled. <laughs> uh, not cancelled, uh, rescheduled for a later date. Yeah, but the the one thing I do have in the diary for next year, um, I've got a document, a filming a documentary at the moment, and then in um, October next year is the Adventure Race World Championships in Spain, um, which I'm in with a team of three others. And that's the um, the first ever all-female team to take part, part in the Adventure Race World Champs, which is very exciting. And so um, I've never, ever trained for something like that with a newborn, but I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> God, well, good luck. And sounds amazing. And how can people follow this journey? Uh, just on Instagram is the most just on Instagram the most straightforward way yeah uh, Jenny Wordsworth uh, yeah Jenny dot Wordsworth yeah. Jenny dot Wordsworth okay amazing well Jenny thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, I'm sure like everyone listening it's been an incredible story just an unbelievable determination and drive please ignore the uh, smoke signal smoke alarm going off in the background but yeah just a remarkable story thank you yeah i do remember the last thing my surgeon said to me was um i hope you wear these scars with pride um and i think i kind of do yeah as you were describing and the pictures show it was uh, quite a horrific injury yeah it's not not pleasant <laughs> <laughs> well again thank you so much no thank you next time on the modern adventurer podcast did make the finishing line and completely loved it and it sort of opened up a can of worms of my sort of competitiveness, stubbornness, my sort of adventure streak and it's gone horribly wrong since. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure but till then have a great day and happy travels.